years, we've actually become a quality center in uh, community health, part of the safety net for Nevada County, and also have a specialty in behavioral health care, um, where people can come and get treatment for behavioral, behavioral health disorders done in a very compassionate, empathetic way. And we're, we're actually used as a role model by many clinics all over the United States. We get clinics in Maine calling us wanting to know how we do what we do because they're not able to replicate it. So what's the secret? And they've had us do trainings on YouTube. You can even find us on YouTube if you want to see how we train people. And the kind of thing we do, it really fits well with how Master and Swami have trained us in how you work with people cooperatively. It's what Swami called cooperative healing. Well, for the last decade, we have been seeking to become a... um, highly qualified kind of clinic called a federally qualified health center. It's called an FQHC. And it not only allows you to apply for larger grants and let you serve more people, but um, it also comes with a very significant cash award, which is kind of ongoing. Um, And we have applied four times. And the first three times we came really close but didn't quite make the cut. This is a highly competitive thing throughout the United States. Any given year that they do these awards, they might do 250 to 400 clinics out of the whole United States. And the application process is actually scored. So you get a a numerical point score. Um, Don't want to lose my talk. Um, And... We didn't think we'd scored that well this time around. We were actually disappointed in our score, so was our grant writer. And lo and behold, we just found out yesterday that we just made the cut. Yes. (laughs) And with our new designation as a federally qualified health center, with our ability to get grants to expand what we're doing and serve more people, including the whole spiritual community and residents, uh, residences over in Oregon House, which has wanted us to come because they have no uh, clinical people there. Um, it comes for the first two years with a $1.2 million grant. And so our... Which is a... Which is huge. It's a huge help for us. We have struggled financially for 33 years. People used to call us a bumblebee clinic because no one could figure out how we stayed in the air. (laughs) You know how physicists say bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly? Well, we were a a bumblebee clinic, or people would call us the little clinic that could, (laughs) like Thomas the Tank. (laughs) Yeah, so very remarkable time for us in the start of a whole new era. So I think... What we have done representing Master and Swami and Ananda will extend further out into the world with this new era. And I would just say, Yato Dharma Tato Jaya. Where there is right action, there is victory. So, our topic today is body, mind, spirit, healing the whole person. And I'm Tiagi Peter, and we also have Tiagi Shanti and Nayaswami Prem, uh, <laughs> Pranaba. Sorry, sorry, Pranaba. Um, yeah, and we'll split the speaking today. Well, I brought with me today my brain model, who also has a big announcement. Oops, sorry. He doesn't like it when I touch his brain. Um, <laughs> He has decided 
he wants to go to college. Now he's ready for those late-night philosophical discussions in the coffee house. Well, I said, well, all right, you want to go to college. Where do you want to go? And he said, I already have it figured out. I looked on the Internet, and I found this great school. You can start right away. There's no admissions process, and all the classes are experiential. And I said, well, that's very interesting. And what's the tuition? Oh, there's no tuition. I said, really? What's the name of it? Well, it's called the College of Hard Knocks. I said, ah, I understand. Actually, everybody is enrolled in that at birth, and only very few people ever graduate. <laughs> and when he heard that, never graduate, he said, okay, I'll look again. So he came back a few weeks later, and he said, I found it. I found this great school. Everybody says it's really funny. And I said, funny? Yeah, yeah, it got started by these real characters. I said, characters? What's the name of this place? Well, it's got kind of a funny name. It's called What's Amata You? <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. Uh, who are these characters that found it? Well, I, you know, honestly, I don't even know their names yet. Everybody calls them by their nicknames. And I said, their nicknames? Yeah, they go by Rocky and Bullwinkle. And I said, ah. Okay, I understand. They are cartoon characters, and Watsamata U is a school in their cartoon program from the 1960s. So you can't go there. So finally, we put our heads together, and we figured out we've decided where he's going. And we've got the T-shirt. Super conscious state. And at the bottom it says... Home of the formidable prefrontal lobes. <laughs> they have a great chess team. Not so good in basketball. <laughs> Master said it was good to laugh every day. In fact, it was one thing when I was very new here, Swami used to work with me on because I was very, very serious when I came here. Um, more than once, he called me up at 6 in the morning or called me at 11 at night to tell me a joke. <laughs> it's very odd. And when I finally realized my sense of humor was improving, he didn't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, let's look at the chronic illnesses of our age. If we look at what costs our culture tremendous amounts of money, disability, is problems for people that you know. You can list a whole host of diseases, everything from diabetes to Alzheimer's disease, MS, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease or heart disease, asthma, depression, anxiety disorders. Do these chronic illnesses have anything in common Actually, one thing they all have in common is inflammation. Isn't that interesting? I remember years ago, uh, I was asked by Dean Ornish's group to prepare a talk on the science behind the Dean Ornish program so when they trained their teachers, they could 
understand what cholesterol meant and what blood pressure meant and how people get heart disease and hardening of the arteries. And one of the points I made in that class, which I thought was really important, is I would ask the question, what causes heart disease? What causes hardening of the arteries? And then I would wait. And someone would stick their hand up, cholesterol. And I'd say, well, cholesterol is a part of it. Um, Stress. Well, stress can be a part of it, but not everybody who is stressed gets heart disease, and not everybody with stress, I mean, not everybody with heart disease has a stressful life. Uh, It's genetic. Well, yeah, actually, in some cases, there seems to be an inherited preponderance, but um, not everybody has a father or mother who had heart disease. And the answer is, we don't know. That's the answer. But one thing we did see that I would always mention is there's a huge inflammatory component in heart disease. If you actually look at inside the blood vessels, they're inflamed. In fact, we can actually do tests called a SED rate or a C-reactive protein in people that have heart disease, and often it's elevated because of the inflammation inside their arteries. In fact, if you look at the plaques inside their arteries, they contain a lot of immune cells and scar tissue. So when you actually pull the plaque out and look at it, it's kind of rubbery and flexible, kind of like silicone caulking that you'd put around your window. It's not stiff and rigid like boiler scale or pipe scale. Well, it turns out that every one of those illnesses that I mentioned, MS, Parkinson's disease, asthma, depression, every one of those has an aspect of inflammation associated with it, including those behavioral health issues that I mentioned, depression, dementia, anxiety disorders. Often we find there's evidence of an inflammatory component affecting the brain and the body at the time those things occur. So it kind of raises the question, what is the best way to treat an inflammatory process in the body? Because we currently we do it kind of piecemeal. We kind of take an individual illness and we try to design um, a treatment for it. And the goal always is, is to look more toward prevention. Well, I realized when I was thinking about the, the talk for today that, in fact, if you look at Ananda Yoga, and the way we we live our lives as Kriya Yogis, that it is the ultimate anti-inflammatory lifestyle. Everything we do has an anti-inflammatory effect. In fact, one thing, you know, I mentioned the Dean Ornish group, you know, they teach yoga, meditation, and diet for people who have heart disease. And the first thing that would happen is People would come in and saying, you know, I really like the diet stuff. I really want to do that, but I don't really want to meditate or do the yoga. Can I just leave that out? And they would say, no. All our studies were done with all these components. You've got to include everything. And that was actually very good advice because it turned out that a lot of the positive anti-inflammatory effect, this beneficial effect for heart disease, came from attacking this issue from multiple points of view, diet, meditation, physical activity, um, changing how you live your life, how you interact with other people, a very comprehensive program. And what I look, when I look at the way we live our lives here, the way we live our lives as Kriya Bonds and Ananda Yogis, everything works with our brain and body in an anti-inflammatory way. Well, what are the results of this? Well, we can see that. 
You know, if I, I look at my patients who come into my clinic who have been living this lifestyle for years, and it doesn't matter whether they've lived in Seattle, doesn't matter whether they've lived here right at Ananda, but they've done these practices and live their lives with the mindset of, I'm a Kriya yogi, I'm an Ananda yogi. I live my life with God remembrance. And everything I do is organized around that. When I look at them physiologically, they always look 10 to 15, younger, 50, 15 years younger than their chronological age, the numerical age on their chart. Physiologically, they look much younger than that. I always, that always struck me. I was interviewed a number of years ago by the Times of India, and they asked me about what's it like taking care of a community full of yogis. Good question from the Times of India. And I said, well, one of the things I've noticed is everybody looks 10 to 15 years younger than you'd expect. And I thought that was a good summary of the effects of this lifestyle. Well, we can actually drill down and look at what's happening inside the body to bring about those kinds of, I'll call them the fountain of youth changes. Because you can actually see, for example, in how our DNA is structured, there's actually changes in our DNA that occur with meditation, the kind of diet we eat here, the way we live our lives, the way we orient our thinking. You know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, is it possible to change your DNA? I would have said, I don't think so. I mean, you could go stand next to a nuclear reactor, and that would probably change your DNA. <laughs> or spend 10 years in space getting more cosmic rays. That might change your DNA. Um, but as far as doing health, healthful things, I, I don't think so. I think it's kind of what you've inherited. And Master had actually said, if you do these practices, if you meditate... You will change your DNA. You will change your genetic material. And it was one of those things I just had to put on the shelf because my scientific mind, I just could not wrap my mind around it. It just did not make any sense. Well, lo and behold, in the last decade, we've discovered two major things. Actually, three major things. First one, that a number of our genes, and remember our genes often influence specific processes in the body. There may be genes that influence whether we have asthma or not, whether we have diabetes or not, whether we have depression, whether we have coronary heart disease, um, whether we have a tendency to have big ears and a big nose and a big jaw, for example. So what we see is those genetic influences have a lot to do with how our body functions. And up until fairly recently, we thought basically when you were born, these genes were either turned on or off, and that was kind of the start, starting place for your body's development. And it just continued on through the rest of your life just that way. Here's something that has changed. Now we understand that there are many epigenetic phenomenon. In fact, they call the, the field epigenics or epigenetics. And it turns out many genes have an on or off state, but there's a choice. They can be flipped on or off depending on how you behave and what you eat, whether you meditate, the kind of thoughts you have, all the things you do in your lifestyle taken as a whole influence how your genetic material responds, and genes start flipping on and off. 
So let's say you were born into a family. Everybody's been an alcoholic. And you hit age 20 and you go, am I going to be an alcoholic too? Well, let's say you just never go near alcohol. And eventually that gene switches off. And so you're ready to have children and you pass on that gene in a turned off position. Isn't that remarkable? In fact, that's one thing when I talk to young people now, um, if they're thinking about having children, is everything you're doing right now is sculpting your genome to pass on to your children, whether genes are going to be turned on and off. Make sure you're doing your meditation. Make sure you're eating well. Make sure you're staying away from everything harmful because your genetic material is watching. And that is what you're going to pass on to your children. Second area. The health of our DNA. Health of our DNA is really measured by how well it replicates. And it's very curious how this happens because we actually have two strands of DNA in this double helix. And when a cell is ready to replicate, the two strands pull apart and replicate themselves. So now we have two sets of double helixes. It splits and you have Two daughter cells. That's what's hap- That's what happens. Well, it turns out that process, which will go on anywhere from ten to fifty times, depending on the kind of cell, before it kind of wears out and doesn't replicate anymore. The ability to do that has to do with how healthy the end caps on the DNA strand are. They're these chubby little cylinders that sit on the end of the DNA and hold it together and allow it to unfurl and replicate itself effortlessly and do it very accurately. If people have long, thick telomeres, they have really healthy DNA and that replicates well. One study that was done very early on looking at this found that if they looked at people raised in very violent environments, that their their telomeres, these end caps, um, were very short and they were thin. And in fact, they looked like someone's telomeres or end caps who was 30 or 40 years older. And then they began to look at other aspects of their physical health and they realized, oh, their bodies are like 30 or 40 years older than they should be. The kind of stress they've been under as a young person, this violence, has really affected them negatively. That raised the question, well, what about good influences? And what we found is people who meditate regularly, they have longer, chubbier, thicker end caps. And so their DNA replicates better. And essentially, they are physiologically younger, not uncommonly 10 to 15 years younger than their stated chronological age. So it fits with just what I kind of observed, that in fact their DNA is showing that. And remember, this is a convergence of all the things we do in our lifestyle, how we think, how we spend our free time, how we socialize with other people, how we meditate, how we serve. All these things, our genome is always watching and responding to that. One last little area on DNA, because I just thought it was fun to mention it. The inside our cells, energy production, physical energy that actually allows the machinery of our cells to work, 
uh, is with these tiny little, they call them organelles. They're actually little spherical energy generators that are called mitochondria. You've probably heard that term before. In a muscle cell, you might have about a thousand of them, all generating energy so that that muscle cell works. Here's something very interesting. Our mitochondria has its own DNA, and it's different than the DNA for the rest of your cell. And when it replicates, the mitochondria replicate as well. And guess what? That DNA only comes from your mother. So your energy production level comes only from mom when you're born. Mitochondria, really influenced by our lifestyle, how healthy they are. So how well your body functions in terms of actual physical energy is influenced by mitochondria function, very much influenced by lifestyle and the health of that mitochondrial DNA, which is actually a separate issue from your regular DNA that makes the rest of your cell function. We've talked a lot over the years about brain changes. I always like to mention that every year because I just think it's so helpful and important. If I go back to the early 1980s when we had some of the earliest data on meditation, we knew it did a number of things. It seemed to kind of make the fight and flight system calmer. EEGs were a little different. The electrical patterns that our brains generate seem to be a little different. Um, people's behavior seemed to be a little different. But we were having a lot of trouble really specifying what's happening inside the brain when people meditate and are there changes to the brain that occur. And up until 1980, we said the brain can't change. We thought the brain was actually a fixed kind of rigid structure that after about age 25 didn't change anymore. And you were kind of stuck with whatever it was at age 25 for the rest of your life. Well, long about 1980, we began to realize the brain is extremely changeable. We call this process neuroplasticity or neuroflexibility, that the, the brain is constantly reinventing itself, constantly restructuring itself. Um, the kinds of cells that are most functional and the way the brain itself is functioning, always under constant change in response to how we are living our lives. It really kind of looks six, years, six months into the future and say, says to itself, as a brain, what do I need to change to allow myself to be in six months where this person is heading? And it doesn't make a value judgment. So it doesn't know whether we're watching a video game or serving another person with empathy and love. It just responds to it. So I'm going to take my brain model here. Sorry, guy. He always hates it when I take him apart. So the two areas I always like to mention are the prefrontal lobes. That's a part of your brain that's right in front, right behind your forehead. By the way, when we meditate, this is one of the areas that gets highly activated. And in fact, the kind of meditation practices we do, this is one of the areas that really gets developed strongly and quickly when you start practicing meditation. One of the things we're finding in research on meditation is there's a big difference in how meditation affects the brain. In fact, this is kind of fun. This is starting to come out. For example, someone who does mindfulness meditation has different kinds of brain changes than someone doing Kriya Yoga or Hong Sa. And we're going to learn more about this. And so 
when I talk about meditation, I'm really talking about the kind of practices we do because it probably one of the key areas it emphasizes our prefrontal lobes and other structures in the frontal lobes. But the second thing that happens is our limbic system, which, which is that part of our brain which is concerned with emotion and instinctual function gets quieted down. In fact, there's an automatic dampening effect. As the prefrontal lobes get stronger, this emotional center in the brain begins to get quieter and quieter. So that area of your brain that gets panicked, that gets uh, responds to stress with agitation and anxiety or gets angry, gets quieter and quieter. And in fact, you can measure in someone who's a veteran meditator and you'll find that their limbic system becomes quite unarousable. It's hard to get them to get angry or upset or anxious in a laboratory setting because their prefrontal lobes have become so strong they inhibit the limbic system. Let me show you the limbic system. So I'm holding the brain up the same way. It's called the limbic system because it's shaped like a half moon or a limbus. A lot of things in the brain were named for what they look like. Like the hippocampus, you've probably heard that term. It's part of the brain that is associated with memory. Hippocampus means seahorse. So somebody looking at an old brain sample hundreds of years ago when they had no idea what stuff did said, what does that look like to you, Hank? I don't know. It looks, I don't know. It looks like a snail to me. Well, we can't call it a snail. Give me something better. Well, what's the Latin word for seahorse? Uh, hippocampus. Sounds great. It's the hippocampus. Well, that's how all this stuff got named. So this is limbic system because it's shaped like a limbus, and it includes actually the amygdala. There's one in each hemisphere and also the hippocampus in each hemisphere. They have concern with emotion and emotional regulation in the brain and actually get very gently inhibited. If it needs to respond, it will, but if you don't need it, it will stay very nicely under good control with your prefrontal lobes. The last thing I'd like to talk about, I'm going to call this kind of my personal koan. Remember, in Buddhist training, often students are given koans. They'll be given a question like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And they ponder that for years until they can give the correct answer to their teacher, and then they're given another koan. They're given another question. Well, I found out very early in my training here with Swami that he was giving me koans. And um, one of his favorite koans, you'll get a kick out of this, is, what does the colon do? <laughs> I'm not making this up. So I'd be sitting around at a, you know, a dinner, and he'd be talking about some great idea for the future and um, asking people about how work was going in Seattle. And then he'd look over at me and said, oh, by the way, Peter, what does the colon do? <laughs> And initially, I would give him kind of my standard, what I learned in medical school, response. And he'd go, huh, be his only response. And initially, I thought, oh, okay, well, there's not much to say about it, so we're kind of done. Um, But he kept asking me. And after about the fourth or fifth time, I went, wait a minute. It's not that he's not remembering he hasn't asked me, that he's asked me before. He's asking me because I haven't given him the right answer. He may not know what the answer is, but if he hears it, he might know. Isn't that interesting? He was actually listening with intuition, I finally realized. So I tried everything. I tried, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That was wrong. (laughs) 
And sometimes he would call me up all excited and say, hey, I'm trying this new supplement because I think it's good for the colon. What do you think? <laughs> and I remember once standing there, I, just, I was just dumbfounded. I just didn't know what to say. I just, I was, my mouth was moving with no sound. And he said, well, I know you don't approve. And I said, no, 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 no. It's just, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Well, it turns out, and I'm glad Swami is here with us today, he will be very happy to hear this, because I have an answer. <laughs> turns out, colon's more important than we thought it was. And what's important about it, there's a number of things, but one thing I'll, I will mention, because this is new information within the last three or four years, is the contents of our colon include a lot of bacteria. And that bacteria is labeled our microbiome. And it is an enormous number of bacteria, different types, very specific ones. And you can either have a healthy microbiome or an unhealthy microbiome, depending on the kind of inhabitants that live there or the ones that just transit through occasionally. And it's very much influenced by your lifestyle. So if you're somebody who's stressed all the time, very hard on your microbiome, and your gut becomes unhealthy, and you'll see why that's important in a second. Second thing is, what we eat has a lot of influence on our microbiome. And in fact, a lot of the dietary advice that we're just now realizing that we've given people for decades was wrong. You know, eat a low-fat diet with no cholesterol in it, and uh, oh yeah, just go for those artificial sweeteners. Um, yeah, turned out we were really wrong. We were actually doing things that were damaging to the microbiome. And so I saw, saw a cartoon recently that uh, showed a physician talking to a patient and he said the patient says so all those years you had me on a low fat diet with no cholesterol it just made me fat and gave me diabetes and the doctor goes yes and then there's a blank space where they're just page where they're just looking at each other and the last one is the doctor going oops <laughs> Here is a secret. If you want to know, well, what should I eat? If I really want to take advantage of what we're understanding about the human microbiome is go look at Master's Daily Diet. It's in there. In fact, I must admit for my entire time as a Kriya Yogi, you know, my 37 years, I have wondered why did he suggest everything he did in the daily diet. I mean, it includes a lot of interesting things like getting sun every day, um, you know, exercising to a sweat daily, um, you know, making sure you're getting wholesome entertainments when you need entertainment, you get adequate sleep, you drink plenty of water, all these kinds of things that they sound very common sense, but he meant them really seriously. And now that we are understanding this last little piece about the microbiome, suddenly a lot of the things he said are really making sense. With the microbiome, the health of our microbiome has effects on our mental health. Turns out there's a connection between our brain and our gut, a neurological one called the vagus nerve. You may have heard that. We've known for really decades that when you meditate, a stimulation of the vagus nerve is part of the relaxation response. But our gut is constantly communicating with our brain via the vagus nerve and chemical messengers that it sends out. You know, we have serotonin receptors in our brain that are associated with whether you're depressed or not depressed. Uh, people that are, don't have enough serotonin in their 
uh, synapses behave depressed and unhappy. Um, well, it turns out you have more serotonin receptors in your gut than you do in your brain. Isn't that interesting? And there are microorganisms in your gut that create serotonin-like neurotransmitters. Isn't that interesting? So it turns out that when we get back to this topic of anti-inflammation, turns out that's one of the main positive effects of diet is it can be anti-inflammatory. And it's one of the healthy things about Master's Daily Diet is it's a roadmap for an anti-inflammatory diet, an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. Well, let me just end with one thing. If you could only pick one piece of advice to give another practitioner of Ananda Yoga about how to stay well and healthy, what piece of advice could you, would you give them? can only give them one thing. We want you to work on one thing. What should they work on? Attunement. Why do I say that? Because everything comes from attunement. If you're trying to decide how should I eat, how should I spend my free time, if you always come from that lens of attunement, you'll always pick it up by the thing that is going to be most beneficial for your spiritual development, and I guarantee that will make you healthiest and happiest. Absolutely. So remember... If you concentrate on attunement, what you will find very quickly is you will want to emphasize devotion in what you do. When I was writing this talk, I was thinking, I should say, well, it's two things. It's attunement and devotion. But the truth is, if you say attunement, immediately that implies devotion because that's part of our the attunement process. The growth development of our heart spiritually is a huge part of our physiologic and mental health. And so if we work on attunement, what we find is everything changes and we're guided to the right things. You know, I can't tell you how many times that when I've been in positions where I haven't quite known what to do, I've just asked the question, Master, what's the right thing to do here? And then I try to feel and I can often feel the right thing to do. I'll always check it with my rational mind and say, does that make sense? And sometimes, even if it doesn't, I'll still include that. And I've had experiences where I've kind of picked up diagnoses on people that just made absolutely no sense that that was what, happened, that was, what was happening with them. But it turned out in the tail end of the evaluation, they had this very rare disease. And it was something I didn't even know about. It was just I had this odd thought that I kept kept pestering me like a fly buzzing around my head. And I realized that's an aspect of attunement, that fly that would bother me because I've asked for it. I, Please help me. So I get that little niggling thing in the back of my mind that there's something I don't know that I have to keep searching for. And when I see it, I realize that I can feel it. I feel it with my heart. Second thing you can do is... Think about what would Swami have done in a similar situation. Many of us were around him. Many of us have read his books, um, heard stories of his life. And often when I'm having trouble feeling things with my heart, I can at least think of a situation where Swami has behaved in a way that is a guide for me on how I should behave in this situation. 
The last thing that I'll often do, and sometimes if I'm, if it's a, an emergency situation, I have to make a decision. I find this really helpful is I'll say, what would happen if I didn't have an ego? And I'll be honest with you, it is a hard thing to deal with because the moment you say that, I'm going to pretend I don't have an ego, what would I do? Because immediately you realize, boy, all your likes and dislikes are trying to pull you away from the right thing to do. But it does work, so that's something you can pull out. You know, I would just like to close by saying with with this that it really is, as it's said in our purification ceremony, the Master says, open your heart to me and I will enter and take charge of your life. The moment that we do that, the moment we open our, open our hearts to Master, open our hearts to God's influence, He will guide us. He will guide us in diet. He will guide us in our relationships with other people. He will guide us in our God realization. I was introduced as uh, Tiagi Shanti, and that is me. Uh, but for those of you who don't know me, I'm also a physician. And um, I was sort of picked up by Master, literally, this is a story for another time, and put into Stanford Medical School. And that is the honest to God's truth. I didn't know anything. I was headed for a PhD in psychology. And suddenly, one day, under the Encinitas Hermitage, I was told, you're going to medical school. So I... have sat through my fair share of lectures in science. And I probably don't need to say this, because we've all been enthralled yesterday and this morning. I know that. But I want to tell you this was brilliant. (laughs) This was absolutely... Really, to convey what Peter just did in 30 minutes is just amazing. Of course, we would expect no less because he's inspired by Master. That's what he was telling you. I just want to um, share a story with you, and I'll go wherever I can go in 20 minutes. Um, Many years ago, there was a woman who came into my office to see me. By this time, I had a very small uh, practice, and as was my habit, I went out into the waiting room to get her and bring her in. And I always sit on the same side of the desk with my patients. Always I've done that, even when I had a huge, really busy practice. And I sat down. I, I just went and called her name in the waiting room. And she walked into the waiting room. I know some of you have heard this story, but it's, it was so perfect for today. And I sit down, and she launches into this tirade. She just is looking at me, but looking down at me. I hate doctors, she said. I've never liked doctors. I don't believe a word doctors say. I'd never met the woman. And she's taking off like this. And she said, I'm probably not going to believe a word you say. And then she just stands up and she tells me this story 
about having seen a gynecologist the day before who was with her for 10 minutes. This is a woman in her early 60s, and she had not seen a doctor, she told me, in probably 15 years. But for the past year, she had had abnormal vaginal bleeding. Never good for a 62-year-old woman. You have to take my word for that. (laughs) She said, the gynecologist was with me for 10 minutes, and then she told me, you have an inoperable cancer. There's nothing we can do. I can help you into hospice. Why don't you go home and talk to your family about it? Now, I'd been in medicine for a lot of years, and I'd practiced a lot of medicine over the years, and I knew that what she was telling me was probably true. I knew that. I've seen that. But I sat there very calmly, and when she was all done, literally about 20 minutes later, I stood up and I said to her, Hi, I'm Shanti. I mean, as a first, she had heard my name from me. I spent an hour and a half to two hours with that woman. And throughout this entire visit, this woman mentioned, I don't know how many times, six times, eight times, maybe more, but I don't want to exaggerate, how enraged she was with her son, how much she actually used the word hate, how she didn't like her husband, This was interwoven. I'd say to her, so tell me, have you ever had any medical problems? No. And, and she'd launch into this again. It was an extremely uncomfortable uh, period of time with her. When she went to leave, my knowing that she probably had an inoperable cancer, I said to her, let's do this. Let's get a CAT scan. Let's get some blood work. Let me take the results of that CAT scan and talk to uh, some colleagues of mine, because after all, I'm not a gynecologist. And why don't you come back in three weeks and we'll talk. Now, I could have had all of that information in 24 hours. But I said to her on the way out, Maria, not her real name, but I'll use it here, I'd like to give you a prescription for something. This woman didn't like doctors. She was not going to like a prescription. I said to her, I want you to go home, and I want you to say three nice things a day to your son. She said, oh, that's not going to be easy. I said, I didn't say it would be easy. She said, well, what would you expect me to say? So I said, well, you know, you have to figure it out, but you've been telling me that he doesn't do much around the house. You're, he's, you called him lazy. Why don't you do this? Every time you see him doing something that feels like it's contributing to the household good, why don't you go up and just put your arms around him and say, I so appreciate what you're doing. And she goes, just like this, rolling her eyes. So I said to her, here's what you have to do, Maria. You have to become an actress. You have to pretend you have a leading role. You have to really look at him and say to him, honey, I so appreciate what you're doing. And I said to her, because... The son was getting the most of it. The husband got a little, say a few nice things to your husband too. She, now one of the things I've learned in medicine, and this is true, if you, if I write something on a prescription, people are much more likely to do it. And I've used this over the years. I mean this, I've ordered special prescriptions. And I write things like, somebody comes to me, They're having trouble with their husband. I'll write a prescription. You and your husband have to go out for dinner alone one time a month. 
a woman who's devoted her life to raising her children. And she has let go of her art and her creativity isn't flowing. And she's having severe menstrual cramps. And she'll be really surprised when she leaves with a prescription that says, you have to go to the beach once a week and spend an hour painting. That's not what people expect when they come to see a busy internist. That woman grabbed this prescription, stormed out of my office. I said to her, wait a minute, let's make an appointment. We did. She stormed out, slammed the door. Everybody in my office looked at me. I said, she's angry. (laughs) I said, I don't think she's coming back. But you know, in three weeks she came back. Here's why I'm telling you this story. She comes in, she sits down. I tell her, you've got a really large tumor. Looks like it's involving some other areas of your body. But we have a lot of options, I said to her. We could do surgery and do a debulking procedure. We could then maybe give you some chemo. I went on very calmly, really trying to give her a little room, little room to accept what was going on. So we go through all that, and she says, okay, thank you. And I said, Maria, wait a minute. And she said, what? I said, how are things at home? She says to me, great, why? (laughs) I said to her, just like this, I said to her, are you kidding? She said, no. I said, Maria, you were in here three weeks ago. You used the word hate more times than I care to remind you. She said to me, Dr. Rubenstone, you won't believe it. I said, I probably will. She said, when I left her, I was really mad at you. I said, I know. She said, I wasn't coming back. I said, I didn't think you would. I mean, it was just going on just like this. She said to me, I was so mad at you that I decided that I would go home and do what you said just to prove you wrong. (laughs) And then she said to me, in three days, I swear this is what she said, in three days, my son and husband were different people. (laughs) You know, I tell you, I helped that woman die, went into her home, I eventually taught her hangsa, we meditated together, I met her family, She died four to six months later. Honestly, I don't remember now. It was the most love-filled, beautiful closing of a life with a family. I don't want to say the most, but I'll say of the most. It was so beautiful. Why am I telling this story? Here we are talking about the heart of Yogananda and healing. That's what we're talking about. Because what happened with that woman... And I substituted a technique. We use Hung Sa. We talk about Hung Sa here. That has not only the meaning, I am that, I am the divine. That has not only uh, the vibration of the Sanskrit terms, but where we are consciously and deliberately strengthening the energy in our spine. Where we're concentrating it strengthening it, and then learning through all of these techniques that uh, Master gave us. And Swamiji so beautifully taught us and interpreted everything for us. And we teach people how to use those techniques and then apply it to everything in their lives. But you see how simple it is. And we do that, let me just say, because Gion Dev said it so beautifully yesterday. He said consciously and energetically how important it is to do our techniques that way. 
consciously and energetically. If we just put in a little energy, as he said, we plateau. We work on these things. We know about affirmations. We know about energization exercises. We understand, or we're taught, that if we bring more will, more willingness, more willpower, there's a greater flow of energy, and we can accomplish more. We, we were told last night when we were told about this grant that for a week or two before the grant came through, pe- a month or two, every week, people got together in that clinic and said healing prayers. Now, do we think those healing prayers went all the way to Washington, D.C. and affected all those people in the government who were making these decisions? Absolutely. Of course we do. We know it. But Maria didn't know it. So, and I'll, I'll tell you, I want to really second what Peter says. I'm always reluctant to say this because if the wrong ears hear it, it sounds arrogant. Quite the contrary. It is so humble. Master is my biggest, by far, there's nowhere near a close second, consultant. I ask him everything. Master, how do I say this? Not only what do I say, how do I say it? so that they can hear it and learn with it and grow with it. Where else would we go? Of course we go to Master. And I'll tell you, just like Peter, diagnoses come, diseases I've never heard of. The next day, my colleagues are saying to me, wow, great pickup. How'd you do that? I say, oh, you wouldn't believe it. (laughs) Because, of course, they wouldn't believe it. But I couldn't do that with Maria. So I said to her, something as simple as say three nice things. Why? Why is all of this the case? Because I'm so reluctant to say anything about science right now, you can't imagine. You know what the word chutzpah means? I feel that after yesterday and today, oh my God. But I want to quote the law of the conservation of energy that says energy can neither be created nor destroyed, but it can always be transformed. Is that the most hopeful thing you've ever heard? It can always be transformed. Nothing has to stay as it is. Peter just gave us the why. Puru yesterday told us we are being changed and changed and changed again every instant, he said. There's a quadrillion, quadrillion. I had to come last night and look up how many zeros that was. (laughs) I did. Quadrillion biochemical interactions per second. That's some transformation for you. All of a sudden, it made everything that we learn about that I always thought was so esoteric. How do you start teaching somebody about the chakras? Really, they sound esoteric. Oh, listen, just come and believe me. We have this spine. You don't know about it. You can't find it on any pictures right now. But it's there. And then, oh, yeah, there are these little vortices of energy. And all you need to do is open them up just like lotus flowers. And before you know it, how do you say that to people? But we know it's the truth that every single thing we do, as long as we're moving energy up the spine, always, Diksha spoke so beautifully yesterday about devotion, into the heart first. You know, because what happens between the third and fourth chakra? Everything's purified by that fire. It's transformed. It becomes the closest to formless that any of our energy has been in this path. Who was it? Jyotish quoted this 
um, maybe at our Sevaka retreat, was a jaya who said, somebody asked him how long is the spiritual path, and he said three feet from the base of our spine to the point between the eyebrows. Whoever said it was a great line. We know that, and we're working, and we have to keep working to keep moving all of that energy in that direction. But all you need to do is say to somebody, and think about this because this isn't just hers. This is ours. I cringe, honestly, even this morning when I was thinking about this, when I think of the negative thoughts I've had, when I think of the negative things I've said about or to somebody. Because I said to this woman, say three nice things a day to your son. And she died. She left this life resting in her heart chakra, not stuck to the ground being weighed down by a massive tumor in her first and second chakra. You hear the difference? It's enormous. It's incredible. We have that power. We, by the grace of our gurus, and by the grace of Swami Kriyananda, who came in and made all of this understandable for us. I, I just want to, I'm going to have to close in a minute, way beyond any of these <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> but I want to say something to you. Uh, in 2007, there was a wonderful documentary made by a man whose name is Werner Herzog. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. He's a very well-known, phenomenal um, documentarian. It's called Encounters at the End of the World. It's phenomenal for a lot of reasons that I, I can't really talk about right now, but see it. It's, it Werner Herzog's very well-known, and he went to Antarctica, and he stayed there for many months, and he interviewed, really, who are... Uh, the brightest, the best of all of the scientists in the world. He took an amazing photography team with him. And it's all worth seeing. It's all exquisite. And if you can see it in one of those places that has high def, all those other words that come after, <laughs> like give you the best picture, do that. But one of the last people that he interviews is a physicist whose name is Peter Gorham. And he says, so Peter, tell us what you're doing here. And Peter says, I'm here studying neutrinos. And uh, Puru, if I get any of this wrong, t tell me later. <laughs> and um, Werner says, well, that's all good. Now, can you tell us what a neutrino is? And Peter Gorham, who is, I, I found out, I looked him up last night finally. He's like one of the biggest neutrino um, researchers in the world. He's given these grants of, I don't want to make this sound little, Peter, but 50, 100, a couple hundred million dollars. I mean that really. This is what he, his life is devoted to finding out what a neutrino is because he says that's just the point. We don't know what it is. We know that it informs everything. We know not a thought, not an action, nothing can happen without Billions of neutrinos. He says this, if you watch it. And he's getting excited, just like I am. And, and he says, but we can't find them. And this is what, what um, Puru said yesterday. He said these uh, subatomic part particles, they're undetectable and unmeasurable. And he's talking about these neutrinos. And he said, we just can't find them. And at some point, literally, he looks, and I, I'm, I mean this, now, that, now I'm serious, with tears in his eyes. He says, 
we're beginning to believe that they exist in a space all their own. And then he stops and he says, Werner, we're beginning to think this is God. It is so powerful. Now, what I want to say, and I know we know this, but we can talk about quarks, we can talk about leptons, we can talk about neutrinos, and it's so exciting. I was on the edge of my chair yesterday when Puru was talking. We can talk about quantum entanglements, whatever they are. The word sort of made me think it wasn't a good place to be, but what do I (laughs) No matter how exciting it gets, and no matter how much we learn, and I, I really do mean this, I can't wait for Puru's book to come out because I, I hope he finds a way to make this leap. It's all still of the mind. That's what's happening. It's fascinating. We're thinking about it. We're reading it. We're studying. Master said, it is only in the unlimited power of spiritual methods that true healing of body, mind, or soul can happen. And he said what we need to be doing is not necessarily figuring out every disease, although all of that's good, and treating the disease is good. Believe me, I, I love being a doctor and being able to do that. He said, strengthen the soul. What beautiful advice. Everything that we know, that we know up here, only in the unlimited power of spiritual methods, he said, will man ever know true healing. What is he saying to us? He's saying to us what he wrote in that beautiful, beautiful poem of his, God, God, God. He said, uh, from a wakeful slumber, as I ascend, this, uh, from a, uh, not wakeful slumber, from, a, from the depths of slumber, as I ascend, the spiral staircase of wakefulness. He's saying, meditate, do your practices, pray, Do the affirmations. In the end, the scientists are always going to be. They're maybe out there saying, you know what? Maybe these yogis and all these teachers, maybe they really had something. But they're so far behind these great gurus. And it is now, it's so simple. Sit down, conscientiously and energetically. Do your practice. It is only in that way, Master says, that we will really know God that we will know for certain that we are one with him and we will be truly healed. Too bad for you if you're thinking you're having lunch at 12 o'clock. <laughs> Why don't we stand for a moment and uh, let's inhale, tense the body in a wave. Exhale, relax in a wave couple more times. You can be seated. Or you can go for lunch now if you'd like. So the Mahabharata, which is the epic from India that the Bhagavad Gita is a small, small portion of, contains a lot of wonderful stories uh, stories that inspire and give a lot of practical uh, understanding. And one of my favorite, one of the most inspiring ones for me, is the story of how Krishna becomes Arjuna's charioteer. 
And it's be, it's on the succession of a lot of other stories that build up to this point, and where the Pandavas, who are the forces of goodness, of light, of soul qualities, are engaged to go into war with the Kuravas, who are the forces of darkness and delusion. And once it's determined after many, many previous stories that this battle indeed is going to happen on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, both Duryodhana, who is the captain or the general of the forces of delusion, and Arjuna, who represents, of course, the Pandava brothers, the five chakras, the soul qualities, they both realize after a all of the characters that are talked about in the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, they've all chosen sides, sort of what's happening in the battle. And then they both realize there's Krishna. And Krishna plays the part of the divine, but he also plays the part in the world of being uh, the ruler of a kingdom. And so there's Krishna, and then there's his vast armies and his kingdom. And so both Duryodhana and Arjuna realize this is very important for the battle that's going to ensue. And so they rush to his palace, Krishna's palace, and Duryodhana gets there first. And he goes in, he goes into the bedchamber of Krishna, and Krishna is sleeping. And he goes with pride in his heart and mind to right beside the head of Krishna, because he wants to be there right away when Krishna wakes. And Arjuna comes shortly afterwards, and Arjuna, very different than Duryodhana, Duryodhana, remember, represents material desire. King material desire is what Yogananda referred to him as. And Arjuna represents fiery self-control. Now, that's an interesting concept we've heard many, many times, but sometimes we skip over it in terms of what it means in this story. But Krishna awakes, and he sees Arjuna, who's come humbly in and waits at the foot of the bed. Because Arjuna, with his whole being, realizes the Lord himself is the key to fulfillment. And Krishna awakes and says, what's going on here? And uh, they explain to him why they came. And out of fairness, he said, okay, I'll give you both something. One of you will receive me, but I will not lift a finger in the battle that's going to happen. And the other can have my vast armies and use them in the battle. And then he says, Arjuna, you go first, because I saw you first. And Duryodhana, of course, is not pleased with this, um, because he was there first. But Arjuna, without hesitation, without a moment's hesitation, responds by saying, I take thee, my Lord. And that significance of taking thee, my Lord, is the power of the healing energy that is represented in the story for all of us. Duryodhana, on the other hand, remember his king material desire, is just joyfully exuberant that he's got the armies and not Krishna. Interesting, isn't it? And what we find in our own lives when we make the choices, as Peter said, about the clinic's efforts of going all these years of doing the right things, that it's following this principle of yata dharma stata jaya, where there's adherence to dharma, doing what's righteous, what's right, then victory is there automatically. Victory is guaranteed because the energy is 
calling on the universal presence in every part of our lives. So here we have this amazing choice that Arjuna makes, and it's the choice that's presented to us. All the stories in the Mahabharata are allegorical. They're not just entertaining stories, although they're very entertaining. But this one for us is really we're asking us where we're at in our hearts, in our whole being. Are we not so much there as Arjuna is completely to be with the divine, but are we directionally there in that same experience? And so from that point on, then they array their forces to go to battle, and they're on the battlefield, as I said, of Kurukshetra. Kurukshetra, allegorically, is the battlefield of ourselves, of our body. And so all of these qualities represented by the characters in the Mahabharata and that are represented in the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita are really just portraying what's going on within us. And when we tune into that, we're able to objectify the subjective experience in us. But So the whole first chapter of the Gita primarily is describing who's arrayed in the battle within ourselves. All these characters are these psychological qualities. And it's interesting that it's said that the most powerful warrior on the battlefield of Kurukshetra is not Arjuna. It's Karna, also known as Radheya. He's a half-brother to the Pandavas. And not all of us remember that part of the story because it's an involved precession of different stories that lead to that understanding. But Karna, his quality is attachment. And sometimes it's understood in this way that will help us be more clear about why he's the most powerful warrior on the field. That attachment is the inclination to seek human happiness. Challenging, isn't it? Oh, isn't that, don't we want happiness? I mean, come on. You know, that must be part of what's going on here. But not in terms of human happiness. Arjuna and his brothers, the Pandavas, represent the soul quality seeking soul immersion in the bliss of divine consciousness. That soul bliss is what we're really here to find in our lives. And only with that will healing take place in in the absolute way. As Puru talked about, the template is ever-changing depending on how we're interacting with who we are and what Peter and Shanti just spoke about. But when we go towards soul bliss, then that template is always fluid of who we are, and it becomes more of a transparent, or perhaps translucent at times only, but it becomes transparent. It's there, but it's not really dictating to us who we are. And the problems, the obstacles, the diseases, all of those challenges are no longer the identity point of who we are. But now, we've got the battle ready to happen. And at the end of chapter 1 in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna asked the Lord, Krishna, who is his charioteer, and will not raise a finger in the battle, to take him in between the opposing forces, his own army and the Kuravas, the forces of darkness, of delusion. And he starts to basically pine and whine. 
it's like if you want a real description of someone whining, that's Arjuna at this point in the story. And he, he says, wait a minute, these are obviously part and parcel of who I am, these warriors opposing me. They're my cousins, they're my family members. All these qualities that have been negative are indeed part and parcel of who I am. They're not separate from me. And that's the perspective that he's giving us to understand. That's how strong delusion is. I mean, he's got Krishna, he's got the Lord. And he's still coming into this doubt, this powerful force of doubt, of insecurity, of lack of awareness of what it is to be there as a warrior on the battlefield. And then at the end of chapter 1 and into the first few slokas, the verses of chapter 2 of the Gita, Arjuna comes to the point where he lets go of the grip of his bow and his arrows and he slumps in his seat in the chariot. And then he says, very clearly, with tears in his eyes, to Krishna, I will not fight. Now we've heard the, that emphasis of I will not fight. But this other thing I just said, we often don't hear that, do we? He lets go of the grip of his bow and his arrows, and he slumps in his seat in the chariot. The bow, Yogananda said, represents the inner spine of awakened energy, of the string of the bow being that focus, and the arrows being the, the concentrated form of being in that God consciousness with that power of that inner spine awakened. And then this, this allegory, this symbol of he slumps in his seat. He sits down. He slumps. So he's got posture that isn't allowing that energy to flow in his spine, but he slumps down, meaning that he's taken the awakened energy, let it go, and he goes into the lowest chakra. He's at the base chakra. It's survival. He, he, and that's really what you start to feel if your, um, uh, your empathy is there with Arjuna, that you start to feel, my God, how many times have I done that? I know what to do. I feel the battle in front of me. I know what these things that have been told endless times, it's many spiritual renewal weeks, and yet, that karma, the pull of karma, including the pull of karna, the inclination to seek human happiness above all, well, that dilemma is there constantly facing us as we move forward every day. And at that point, Krishna looks at him and says, My dear one, and he says, it says in, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the most touching parts of the Gita, it says, as if smiling, Krishna says to his beloved Arjuna, Oh, my dear one. And then the rest of the Gita happens. So almost 17 full chapters of the dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna. Krishna pointing out why, of course, he has to fight. And the remembrance of that, the Shmriti, that divine remembrance, as Patanjali evokes in the Yoga Sutras, is the key to keep in mind for everything that happens for us. Because the, the, 
momentum that we gain. Remember Peter talked about, and Puru I think uh, touched on this, once we get to a certain point of momentum, uh, Peter was saying about the brain, that for a long-term meditator, the consequence of rising to anger isn't there anymore. Because we've built the power of that momentum with the soul qualities. We've gotten on the battlefield and really declared, not only with our intention, not only with our desires, but with the power of that integration, that action that makes it powerfully real as our own experience. You know, Crystal Clarity Publishers, which is the publishing house of Ananda, um, has put out a series of books called the Wisdom of Yogananda books. Fascinating titles. And the one title, and Anandi helped manifest all this. She always give praise when you give, when you read that, those books to appreciate Anandi's great efforts in making these manifest. But there's one called How to Have Courage, Calmness, and Confidence. And I don't know about you, but the title itself just felt like, wow, that's fascinating. You know? And the point of confidence, it's not one that we really engage in normally as devotees because to tell you the truth out in the world confidence is a synonym with increased ego you know with pride with attachments in that way but in looking at what Yogananda emphasized and certainly Swami Kriyananda as well but that confidence in a sense could be described in this other phrase from Yogananda center everywhere circumference nowhere Interesting mix there, isn't there? Match up. Does it really match up? Confidence? Center everywhere? Circumference nowhere? It's the only way you can have true confidence without the ego, is that we become deeply established in who we are in our center, and that there's no barrier to that infinity of that consciousness that reaches out. Think about love. We've talked in various talks uh, including this morning, about devotion and love. Think about what love really is in your own experience. That when love is personalized to a degree that you're wanting something from love, it will take you into emotions almost automatically. <coughs> Once you shift that awareness in the heart and open up and expand then love itself is what's happening. Not, I love you, or you love me, but love itself is the powerhouse that's animating you in that experience. And certainly we can direct it to a person, or everyone. That's how we will feel in our own unique lives. But love itself is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. And when we're able to feel that, the confidence that we have is the power of God's presence. There's a, a, a wonderful phrase that's in another one of these Wisdom of Yogananda books, the um, success book, How to Be a Success. It's also in other writings in uh, Yogananda's original Yogoda lessons. And now pay attention to this quote because it's always thrilled me and entertained me, but it's a little bit unusual. Um, the quote is, smile that perpetual smile of balanced 
recklessness. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, it's not one that you would normally pick up on that would come from Master, from Yogananda. But what's in that is a jewel. And as we polish it, we really integrate that experience. So he's saying, smile. But he's saying that perpetual smile. What, what does that mean? It means that smile is the gift of God always happening. It's perpetual. What we're doing is we're saying, as Shanti and others have said, attunement. We're allowing ourselves to be attuned to that perpetual reality that's always at the heart of who we are. The heart of Yogananda is the heart of who we are. And as we open up to that always present experience of the divine smile that's being offered to us, when we engage and we integrate and take that and let it flow through us, that is amazing. And then it goes on for the second part. Smile that perpetual smile of balanced recklessness. Now, for a lot of us, recklessness isn't a term that we would associate with being what we really want to do. Often we're trying to not be reckless in what we do. But Master had just a, a sweetness around this phrase. And he had that adjective before recklessness that was crucial. Balanced. That the spiritual path, when we open up to the power of it, will bring us into our center. That's the balance. And in that balance we have the freedom. So if you substitute the word freedom for recklessness, because what Master is trying to convey is don't be bound, don't be limited, feel yourself expansive, feel that freedom. So smile that perpetual smile of balanced freedom. The power of that experience is really the healing energy that comes through us. Because that energy that comes with our will, our willpower, needs to have awareness. I remember often Swami Kriyananda would say this, but Yogananda himself wrote this and inferred this about the energization exercises. They're really, as an emphasis, about us realizing we are the cosmic energy. We will be recharged. We will gain tremendous benefits. But almost those are the subtext. The power of realizing that we are that cosmic energy is really the significant emphasis that Yogananda brought to us through the energization exercises. And we can extrapolate that into every part of our lives. We can animate our devotion. We can animate our concentration. We can animate our kindness with other people. We can animate every aspect of this life. Because why? We are center everywhere, circumference nowhere, and that we are that experience of that energy and of that consciousness.